Amen. Amen. Well, I want to assure you that I do, in fact, know that it's Easter. Uh, I do know that. Some of you might be doubting that because of the passage of Scripture that I read in the beginning of the service. But I know that it is because I know that there are some of you who are here specifically because it's Easter. Maybe you were invited by a friend or saw a sign out front. And, and maybe you're somebody that normally doesn't make a habit of, of maybe attending church on a regular basis. But there's something about that Easter that kind of draws you and you want to kind of get back to your roots. If, if that's you, man, we're just so glad that you are here, and of all the different churches that you could have chosen to be able to go to, you chose to come and to worship and to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Savior Jesus Christ with us. And I want to thank you so much for doing that. But I also want to know uh, you to know that uh, I struggle with Easter sermons. Uh, people think that it would, should be so easy, but it's really not easy for me. And part of that reason is if you're familiar with celebration, we usually preach through large sections of scriptures at a time over weeks and months, many times through an entire book. And so whenever Easter comes up, it kind of pops up and we find ourselves kind of breaking away from our series. And it's kind of like a, we interrupt this program to bring you a special announcement. Jesus Christ is alive. Yay! Now back to your regular scheduled, you know, program. And so we kind of do that and it kind of sometimes feels like it breaks the flow a little bit of what we were doing this year. That's especially true um, because last week uh, David preached a message from um, 1 Samuel chapter 30, which means that there's only one chapter left in the book. Now, that may not mean anything to you, but that means one chapter left before we finish the series on the life of David in 1 Samuel. If you know me, you know that I'm a little OCD. And that little chapter hanging out there bothers me more than you know. I just want to finish it. It's kind of the same compulsion I have when I walk into someone's home and, the, and, and there's a painting that's crooked. And my wife is like, just calm yourself, relax. And I just, I find myself gravitating, need to, need to straighten it. Or when I eat with somebody with a beard like Nick and, and there's a little piece of food kind of dangling on the side and I don't hear a thing they say for an hour. I'm just like, oh, touch it, fix it, fix. And I just want to kind of wipe that thing off. And, but when it, it's the same thing, we're at the very end, all these chapters, 31, one left, let's preach it. And on the other side, I know that the reason that many of you, or some of you at least, that are coming today is you're expecting specifically to uh, hear a message on the resurrection, and good reason, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of those two things, I'm incredibly grateful to God for chapter 31 in 1 Samuel, because I think it satisfies both desires, uh, both my need to have things closed, but also to be able to show the significance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at this look at the story, go and work through the story, but I want to warn you, this is not a happy story. This is gloomy and this is dark. In fact, it's the darkest passage in all of the book of 1 Samuel. It just is not a good ending at all. And uh, in, 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 in fact, it seems as though the author has not wanted to kind of finish the story. In fact, this story begins back in chapter 28. He could have finished it right there, but it's such bad news. It's such painful memories and such a uh, painful word to be able to deliver. It's almost like he's just kind of procrastinating a little bit until finally he's like, okay, I've got nothing else to say. Here it is, as painful it is, as it is, here's how the rest of the story goes. And so what we're going to do, we're going to look at the story, and I believe that there's kind of three truths that I really want to point out to you that we learn from the text. And it is, uh, I'll warn you, for the most part, pretty dark. 
So, so let, me, let me say this. First thing that we see in the text is we see the tragedy of sin's end. The tragedy of sin's end. Now, uh, all you need to know really about the chapter is found in verse 1. Uh, that, that's all. It, it, the, it was a tradition for Hebrew writers to often just sum up everything they want to say in one short sentence. That would make a great sermon, by the way, right? Some of you are like, yeah, just make it one brief sentence. Yeah. And so then they would, they would take the rest of their lines and they would begin to explain in more detail what it was that they summed up in the first verse. Now we see it. Take a look at it. He says, Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Gilboa. What the author's doing is he's letting us know how a battle that began in and began to develop in chapter 28 now finally ends. There in the beginning of chapter 8, we see two great forces, the Philistines and the Israelites, and the Philistines on one mountain, the, the Israelites on the other, and they're gathered to be able to fight with one another. Now we find how it ends, and it doesn't end well for Israel. They're, all, they're almost completely annihilated. In fact, when we continue to read through the text, we find out that Saul's sons, three sons, have died, including Jonathan, the close confidant and friend of David. Uh, and Saul has been injured uh, by, by um, an archer, one of the Philistine archers, and he's to the point where he's, he's severely injured, can't escape, can't move. And all of a sudden, the Philistines are kind of hedging in, and they're coming in on him. And he knows, uh, as a king, that if the enemy gets a hold of him, being a soldier, and especially a king, that it's not going to end well with him. There's going to be unimaginable tortures that they're going to use and experiment on him. So in a moment of desperation, he turns to his armor bearer and he says, hey, hey, run me through, have mercy on me and kill me. And the armor bearer says he was completely fearful. He knows that he couldn't raise a hand towards God's anointed, so he refuses to do so. And then at this point, Saul finds no other way out of this. And so he literally commits suicide by falling on his own sword. Now, this is not a happy ending to a story, but what is the point? I think the point of it, after all of these chapters, after 31 chapters, I think what he's ultimately showing us is the event teaches us about the tragic end of sin. In other words, the end of a sinful life, a life that refuses to repent of sin and place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ no matter who you are, no matter where you live, no matter what, what, what business you do, it always ends in tragedy apart from repenting in God. Now, what's most tragic about this story is not just how he ends, but the fact that it didn't have to happen. See, Saul was a man who, who, had, who experienced every type of spiritual privilege and blessing imaginable. He was first and foremost born as an Israelite, as one of God's covenant people, precious people. And, and, and he, he had every kind of physical characteristic that men often enjoy, much like your pastor. He was very tall and, and very good looking, a strapping young man, and everybody wanted to be him. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, but, but God also not only gave him all of those things, but he hand chose him to be the first king of Israel, to be able to lead his shepherd, his people, he had the Holy Spirit that came upon him to equip and to be able to empower him to do everything that God had called him to do. And he even had the advantage of being able to speak to God on a regular basis through the prophet Samuel. That's a lot of benefit. That's a lot of blessing. And my question for you is, what would you expect a man who has been given that, those many blessings by God? How should he respond? What would be the right way to respond to such blessings from God? 
Well, the way to respond would be to at least acknowledge God, right? To at least honor him and to be able to try to use those things that have been trusted to you for your glory. But Saul does none of those things. He takes advantage of all the blessings. He takes the advantage of all the opportunities that God has given him. And instead of using it for God's glory, he uses it to fuel his own sinful lifestyle and his desires. And this is precisely, now he's being warned. And and in the text, he was being warned time and time and time again by the prophet. This will not end well. You have to repent. You have to turn back to God. If you don't repent, it won't end well. Guess what? It didn't end well. It ended in tragedy. And this is what I want to tell you. So we take that story, but what you understand, that's not an isolated story. That same story and that same tragic ending is is reiterated and told time and time and time and time and time and time again throughout human history. Every person, the Bible says, that lives in sin with a failure to repent and believe and place their faith in Jesus Christ, their life can end in no other way, in no other way except tragedy there's not any other option there's not something different behind door number two it always ends tragically this is precisely what 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 paul was writing in romans chapter 1 in verse 21 He, he was writing and he's explaining what it looks like to be apart from christ and he says he says for although they knew god what he meant was they knew god in a general way they knew that he existed because they saw all the creative things around them. They, they, they knew that there must be a God. But instead of worshiping God because of uh, that he was God and because of his creation, he says, but they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. In other words, God gave them food. God gave them health. God gave them children. God gave them marriage. God gave them all these blessings. And yet the person that God created and bestowed all these goodness upon, they did not recognize God. They did not honor God. Instead of worshiping the creator, they ended up worshiping the creation. And that's what Paul says. He says there, he says, in their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds animals and creeping things and then here is the tragic ending he says therefore god gave them up a life of sin listen very carefully you may have heard this a million times but i want you to really essence the reality of this a life of sin a life of rebellion against god a life that says i will live it for my own pleasure and not for the glory of god that I will take what God has given me and I will use it on my own sinful passions. He says a perpetual unwillingness to bow our knee in submission to God always ends this same way. Do, Do you get the point? It always ends in the same way. I see this principle a little bit in in parenting. I don't know if you've done this. We got any parents? We've got to have some parents here, right? Because there's a thousand children back there. Um, And it's more than just four of us uh, that that have them. Um, But parenting, if if you've already raised your kids, you walk around like a big swaggering hero. Yeah, you know, our kids, yeah, that was no problem. If you have kids, you know it's the toughest thing you've ever done in your life. Yes, right? And, And so raising them is really difficult. But if you, I don't know the exact age, but it's usually right after one it's like, it's like your, your, your baby, you got this sweet little baby, all goo goo gaga, and just, oh, it's so precious, look at it, it's wonderful, it's perfect in every way. And then all of a sudden, it turns into like Evander Holyfield, like overnight. And what I mean by that is, all of a sudden, your precious little girl begins to beat everybody up in the nursery. Do you guys not have that, right? Oh, yeah, you, you guys, like, all your kids are Buddhists, right? They're all like pacifists, all, all little Gandhis in there, oh, yeah. 
and everything. And so and what happens is, I don't know what it is. All of a sudden, they just start striking. Do you remember that? They just start striking people. And you're like, what? Where, did, where did that come from? Hey, this is my, 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 my little precious daughter, Stacy. Whack! Oh, I'm so sorry she punched her son in the face. Uh, I don't know where that came from, right? And they begin to kind of hit. And if you're a responsible parent, you should not put up with this at all. Would you agree? I mean, you do not want to be the parent whose child and nursery keeps bludgeoning all the other kids, right? You don't want to be known as, as that. So in our house, there is a no-hitting policy under any, we're very strict with that. And so as soon as they start hitting, we know that it's coming. They're about one, a little bit later, they start cocking that arm back and letting it fly. And we tell them that is wrong. And immediately we discipline them. Anybody with me? I mean, we cannot have it. Thank you, brother. All right. I see that hand. Uh, and, and we, we say, and so, so, so we sit there, and so now I got to tell you something. We train them, and we train them, and we train them, and we train them. Maybe I'm training them wrong, but it, we do it like a hundred times. We do it a hundred times, and still every time you're like, ah, and, and they sit there, and they still got it cocked back, and they still let it swing. They let it fire, right? The other day, don't tell my wife this, because she still thinks our youngest child, uh, Everly, is still perfect, okay? And she's very defensive whenever I go, look at that sin nature. Oh, what the, don't you talk to my baby, you know, you know, she all the claws come out, and I'm like, look at it. You can see it. You know, the demon's in her. No, I'm just, uh, and you see, and the other day, sure enough, she got angry with her sister, and man, she cocked it back. I mean, just cocked it right back, like, like that. And I go, oh, no, you don't. No, you do not. Put it away. Stop it. You know, this isn't going to end well for you. you don't, don't you do it. Don't you do it. And she stops, and she looks at me. Do your, your kids ever do this? They look at you, and it's like a stare down. It's like a stare down. I'm 45 right? She's one, which really is a problem in and of itself that I have a one-year-old. But we're looking at each other, and, and it's kind of like, like an old Western, like, and you're like, who's going to draw first, right? And she's sitting there. She's got her arm back, and, and I'm thinking, what, what are you thinking? We've been over this a hundred times, and all I could think is that she's thinking, I've done this about a hundred times. I've hit people that my parents say I shouldn't have hit, and not once has it ever ended well for me at all. I've always been severely disciplined for this. He goes, but you know what? Maybe this time will be different. Maybe this time, if I pop somebody right in the face, maybe my parents, instead of disciplining me, will throw me a party. Have cake, ice cream, maybe a puppy or a pony or, or maybe a pinata or, or maybe even more. Maybe they'll give me a participation trophy. Everybody wants that, right? And so, so they're just kind of looking there. And sure enough, man, she just hauls off and whacks uh, the, the child, and you're sitting there going, are you crazy? You must be crazy. Every single time it ends the same way. And yes, you're insane because you keep doing the same thing over and over again. But you know that that really is, you've heard that, that the definition of insanity is to do the same thing over and over and over and over again and expect a different outcome. You know the whole human race is insane? Because the whole human race from the time of the very first man of Adam has bought into a lie thinking that somehow by sinning and rebelling against God, that it will end well with them, that somehow it will give them advantage. They'll be in a better place. They'll be more prosperous. They'll be better off. And the truth that we see all the way through the Bible and here at the end of this book is that there is a sure tragedy for anybody who remains in their sin. The first thing that we see, but there's something else how do we know that for sure? You say, how do you know that? Well, I know that because I know of the certainty of God's word. Second point, 
the certainty of God's word. Now, notice, if you will, verse 6. Look at verse 6. Very important verse here. It says, Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day. All right? You say, what's the significance of that? What's significant is this is exactly how God said it was going to happen. When you get back to chapter 28, and you begin to find out kind of what happens before this, when Saul looks across that valley and he sees that mighty army of the Philistines and he's looking over there, the Bible says that he is, he is embraced and overwhelmed with fear. And part of the reason is because of the army. The other reason is he has nowhere to turn for help. God's not listening to him. God's given him up because he refuses to ultimately repent. So he's on his own. So he needs help from somewhere. So he gets desperate. So he goes to basically a palm reader. He goes to a median who communicates with the dead. And he goes to him and he says, he says, listen, I want you to bring back this dead man for me. His name is, is Samuel. And she does that very thing. And he comes to him and he says, Samuel, he goes, listen, I need to know what to do. I, I, I need to turn somewhere. I need help from somewhere. How, how is this whole thing going to end? And this is what Samuel said. Now, this is 24 hours, about 24 hours before that battle in that verse that I just read. He says, moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with him. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. This is what he says is going to happen. In verse 31, it happens exactly the way that God said it was going to. Why? Because God's word is always certain. What God says, get grasp this, what God says in his word will happen, will always happen. He bats a thousand. It never fails. He would win jeopardy forever. He is always right in all he says. One author says this, Israel may fall at Gilboa, Saul may fall on his sword, but the word of Yahweh will not fall. It will always come true. We see this throughout the course of scripture, right? In the very beginning, there's basically nothing. God comes on the scene and he says, let there be light. And what happens? Light. It immediately appears. He doesn't, ha he doesn't try two or three times. The moment he says it, it's done. Jesus Christ, who we know is fully God. Do we not know that? Yes. He comes and he's, he's sleeping in the bow of the boat. And, and, and this, this, they're in a great storm. He and his disciples, they're afraid that they're going to die. And all of a sudden, what does he do? He stands up and he says, peace be still. And what does the wind and the waves do? They listen to its creator and they are completely still. We read again in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 11, it says, so, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the things for which I sent it. Whatever God says happens exactly the way he says it's going to happen. There is no other option. It never happens in any other way. The reason that you and I have a hard time getting our, 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 our arms around that is because we've known too many people who have broken their word. We have too many people who have said or promised things and they've broken those promises either because they never intended to be able to, to, to keep it or, or, or because of circumstances outside of their control, they were unable to keep it. Well, guess what? There's no circumstance outside of God's control. When he says it, it happens. Now, there's two parts of his speech in the word of God. On one part, you can, you can kind of categorize it in two parts. One, one aspect of his speech is judgment. It's justice. And, and, and that's what God does. God, for example, in Luke chapter 13, verse 5 says this. He says, but unless you repent, you will all likewise 
perish. God says this so we know it comes true, yes? But what does it mean? It means anybody, as Saul did, who does not repent from their sin and turn in faith with God will perish, not might perish, or maybe there's another way, or maybe this will be the alternative, and maybe this will end differently for somebody else. He says they will perish. That is really kind of a sobering term, is it not an idea? But on one side, his words are our judgment and justice. And by the way, we want a just God, do we not? When we see the evil in the world, do we not want God? We cry out, where's the justice? This is wrong. Babies being killed. People start. We want justice. God is a just God. He must punish sinners. But on the other aspect, when we read the word of God, there's another half to it, and that is his words of mercy. It's justice, but it's also mercy. And, and, and we hear the mercy in, in places like Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. He says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord is, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Listen, listen to Romans 10, 13. Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We've already established the certainty of God's word. Yes, his judgment is certain for all those who refuse to repent and believe. But guess what? So is his mercy and his word certain towards those who will repent and believe. Not, not for, 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 for per, to perish, but to have eternal life with God. You know what that means? The good news is, is that this morning, if you for the very first time, or for the very first time in which God begins to actually grip your heart in a way that you've never imagined, no matter what you've done, I want to emphasize that, no matter what you've done, no matter what kind of sin, no matter how long you've been, you, you've been sinning, if you call yourself the chief of all sinners and you're an expert at it, that you could write a book that would blow the professionals away and your sin, God's grace is sufficient to cover that and to forgive you of that sin. If you will call out for mercy, say, God, forgive me. Identify that this sin is against you. I know that I am deserving of death. Save me. And guess what? Back to the same point the certainty of God's word, he will save you. Now, here's what I feel already by some of the looks and some of the, you know, whatever. So uh, this, is, this is what I'm feeling. I'm feeling, dude, I heard the same thing last year when I was here. I heard the same thing, did it. You know, hey, don't worry about me. When I was little, I asked God to come into the God-sized hole of my heart. We're good. I got a hot dog and everything. Uh, it was very cool. Got a little certificate. My, my parents keep saying, hey, listen, I know you're living horribly, but I still remember the day you walked the aisle and you got baptized. Just remember, you're a believer. And you're sitting there going, yeah, I'm saved, even though I want nothing to do with God. And so my question for you is, how do you, how do you know? Yes, God's word is certain, but how are you certain? How are you certain today that you truly have eternal life? that you truly are born again, that your sins have truly been forgiven, how would you know? Is it, is it because your mama told you to? Is it because you prayed a prayer? A prayer is not necessarily bad, but a prayer could mean nothing at all. It could be an empty uh, confession, an empty profession. Jesus says that on one day during judgment, there will be people who come to him wearing WWJD bracelets and, G and Jesus is my co-pilot books, and they're going to have great big giant books with obnoxious uh, uh, Bible covers, and they're going to have these cheesy Christian t-shirts like Be Wiser, and they're going to come up and they go, hey, you're, you're my Lord, and they go, depart from me, I never knew you. How would one know? I think we know it from this third point here, and the third point is the validity of true salvation. Now, you would think that the story couldn't possibly get any better, but you would be wrong. 
We find in verse 7 that the people who, who were in these surrounding cities next to this battle going on, when they hear that the Philistines have defeated the Israelites and they've wiped them all out, including Saul, including his children, they flee, the Bible says. They flee. They're not going to stick around. And now they don't have a king. They don't have anybody to be able to protect them. They are literally like sheep without a shepherd. No protection, no direction, don't know what to do. The only thing they knew know to do is to be able to flee. And the Bible tells us that the Philistines become even more horrendous. And the fact that what they do is the next day they go to the battlefield, and this would have been normal, normative, they go and they begin to basically rip off anything of value, like all the armor and the swords and things like that from the dead bar- bodies. They begin to strip them. And it just so happens that they run into uh, Saul. Well, not really run into him because they maybe stumble over him. But he's, he, sorry, he's there. And so they see them and they strip Saul of all of his armor. And to humiliate him and to rejoice in their victory, they take this stuff and they send it off around the country. They send messengers, let them know that Saul is dead. They, they take his armor and they put it up on an altar of one of their false gods, the Asheroth, and they begin to rejoice and praise their God for the victory over Jehovah, over the Israelite God. And so they're all rejoicing over in the midst of this. And if that wasn't bad enough, they decapitate him. And then they take him, and then they, as, as, as the word of God says, they fasten his body to the wall of Belshan. Literally, the scriptures say, they nailed him to the wall for all to see. So there he is in utter humiliation, naked, no head, nailed to a wall, and everybody who passed by sees, sees his humiliation. Now, the Bible says that because of this, most people fled, but we read in verse 11 that not everybody fled. Let me, let me point that out to you. Look at verse 11 once again. He says, but when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and they went all night and they took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Beth Bethshan and they came to Jabesh and they burned them and they took their, their bones and they buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and they fasted seven days. Let me answer two questions. The what? What did they do? When this group found out about the demise of Saul, they didn't flee. They didn't go away. They, didn't, they weren't scared and run for their lives. Instead, they actually ran to danger. They, in the cover of night, actually left where they lived, went over to this other place, which would have been approximately 15 miles. They would have gone deep into Philistine territory, putting their very lives on the line, all to be able to rescue a dead king. And they grab the bodies and they take it back. And when they take it back, it says that they burn them. That was unusual for Israelites to do such a thing. But they burned them because the flesh would have been uh, carrying disease. And so they burned the flesh off, but made sure they didn't burn the bones. Then they took the bones and then they put it in a proper burial to show respect. And they buried him underneath the Temerith tree where he, used to, where he used to rule and reign and give uh, wisdom to, to, to his people. And so here these people come and they take care of him. Why? Here's my question. Why? Why would some, on hearing that the king is dead, run and scatter? When some, hearing that the king is dead, run to be able to go and to be able to show him honor. There's one simple answer for that. It's the natural response to anyone who has been saved by the king. Now, let me explain. When you go back earlier in the chapter, some of you may remember this in the book. In chapter 11, Jabesh Gilead, this, this particular group of people that he went to be able to save his body. 
we learned about them, and they were surrounded by an Ammonite king, a man by the name of Nahash. And the Ammonites were completely surrounded to them, and there was no way for them to get out of this. They knew that they were going to die. Nahash was such a gruesome dude that when they tried to build some kind of treaty and they said, hey, look, we'll, we'll, we'll give you money, uh, we'll serve you, we'll do anything and everything you call us to be able to do, Nahash says, okay, I'll make a treaty for you, uh, but I also demand that you gouge every one of your right eyes out. I want every one of your right eyes has basically said, I'm not going to make a peace treaty with you. So they knew that they were in harm. So for seven days, they waited, and they waited out the siege. And so they begin to send out spies, and they begin to send them out throughout the country. And Saul, who's out with his, uh, with his oxen, he's plowing the field, and, and all of a sudden he hears about what is happening to Jabesh Gilead. And the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, comes upon him. And as his first act of a king, he rallies the men of Israel. And they go and they rescue Jabesh Gilead from certain and absolute death. So why in the world is the people from Gilead, Jabesh Gilead, the ones who go into difficulty, into hardship, even though it's going to be difficult for them to go and to be able to honor the king? Simply this, they understand that he was their savior. Without them, they would have been dead. Without them, there would have been no, absolutely no future. So here's what I want you to understand. This is a natural response to anyone who has truly been born again. The way that you know that you're born again is not because you're afraid of hell. It's because you love Jesus. Because you love Jesus. You love him because you know that apart from him, there would be no hope. Apart from him, there would be no forgiveness. Apart from him, there would be no hope for the future. Apart from him, that you would be lost in your sins and you too would face the same tragedy that every other person who died in their unbelief would follow. And so guess what? Being comfortable really isn't that big of a deal. I don't live for that anymore. Uh, just, uh, 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 but what is important is our love for the person of Jesus Christ, our Savior. That in and of itself is validation that somebody has truly been born again. For a person to sit back and say, man, I prayed a prayer, I know that I'm okay, but not having love in their heart for God to follow him and to serve him and to seek after him and to learn him, that's not salvation. Somebody that just sits there and says, yeah, I believe. It's a mental belief, but it's not a belief that has transformed the person's life. The love of that person is the validity, or it validates that somebody has truly been born again. Now look, this story could not have ended on a, darker, uh, on a darker note. Would you agree? Look, the king dies. The king dies. And you end the book, oh yeah, the king that was sent to save all of you, by the way, he's dead. It doesn't get any darker than that. It, but what we find out is, have you ever heard of the phrase that it's always darkest right before dawn? Well, the dawn is 2 Samuel. If you understood how the writer sets this up, what he does is he finishes as dark as you possibly can be in a place of hopelessness, and then he introduces 2 Samuel, and there we read that God has a new king, a better king, a man after God's own heart who will lead and save his people. But we know that even that David was not perfect. We know that he was actually a point or a figure or a shadow of a greater king, an ultimate king to come, and his name is Jesus Christ. Now, you may not have put this together, but just stick with me just for one moment. Did you notice when we told that story and read through that in the beginning that there is a lot of similarities between Saul's death and the death of Jesus Christ? 
This is why I had to preach this passage today. If I would have preached it next week, I would have said, hey, yeah, you remember last week when we talked about the resurrection? That's why I had to be able to preach it today. Let, let me show you the similarities between the two. First of all, both of them in the story were sent by God explicitly to save his people. The Spirit of God came upon both of them to do the work of the Father who sent them. He too, Jesus Christ, in verse 3, it says that Saul was wounded. And the word of God in the New Testament, we find out that Jesus too was wounded. In, 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 verse, in, in verse 4, we find out that he was, Saul was pierced through. In the New Testament, once again, we know that he too was pierced. In verses 8 and 9 of chapter 31, we find out that Saul was stripped of his clothing. In the New Testament, we find out that Jesus too was stripped of his clothing. We know that he was nailed. Saul was nailed to a wall. We know that Jesus Christ was not nailed to a wall, but nailed to a what? Nailed to a wooden cross. We do know upon their death that they were hung up for, to, to be shamed by all who would see them. And we know that immediately after their deaths, there were some faithful people who took them off and valued them and loved them and they gave them an appropriate barrier, a burial. All of these things are almost exactly alike. But there's some very, very important differences. And this is very quick. There were very big differences. First of all, Saul's suffering was self-caused. The reason that he died was because of his own sin, because of his own rebellion. That's why he faced that tragedy. What Jesus craved was a result of his own sin. Jesus died not for his own sin because he had none, but Jesus' death was for the sins of others. Saul's death brought others under condemnation with him, but Jesus' death delivered us from all condemnation. Saul was afraid and he took the easy way out to be able to escape unimaginable suffering. Jesus Christ faced the suffering. Nobody took his life. He laid it down freely. And he experienced as love for you unimaginable horrors on the cross. As the wrath of God that was meant for you and I poured out on him. The greatest difference between the two altogether the greatest difference is that when Saul died at the end of this book, he remained in the tomb. And when Jesus Christ died in the tomb, you better believe people fled. People thought it was the end. The disciples gathered together in a room, in a dark room together, believing that this whole thing was a pie in the sky and no good could ultimately come out of this. But on the third day, as Nick read, Jesus Christ came back to life, the only king who ever did. You said, what's significant about that? We have to go back to the reason that Jesus died on the cross. The reason he died on the cross was to be a substitute for you and I, so that your sin and my sin would be poured out on him, so that the wrath of God that was meant for you and I would be met on him until it was completely satisfied. So therefore, there would be no anger towards us because he satisfied that wrath towards us. But if he remained in the grave, how would you and I ever know if God had been satisfied? We would always be wondering, well, he died like everybody else. Is he satisfied? To demonstrate his satisfaction towards us who repent and place our faith in him, that his anger is no longer burning towards us, but has been satisfied by God's grace through faith alone. He raised him up on the third day as an example and evidence of God's pardon for you and for me. I'm going to ask the band to come out just for a moment. And, and I, I just want, just, just give me just, just a second, just a second, if you'd be so gracious. All I want to say to you today is, if you are thinking 
that you're going to be the exception somehow in this life by living for this life, by living for the things of this life, by using the things that God has given you and live in rebellion against God, doing things your way and not submitting to his way. And you think that there somehow is going to be some other way that all that's going to end apart from tragedy. You're wrong. And I don't say that in judgment. I say that in love to you. Because I feel like people are walking around all over the place, and they're like, yeah, 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 I know. My mom and dad said, yeah, my grandpa said, yeah, the preacher says we need to give our lives to Christ. We need to follow him. I hear all that kind of stuff. But you know what? Maybe, just maybe, I can find a different way. There is no other way. And it's because God says it. But, but if, if you're sitting here today and you're just sitting there going, Mike, I don't want that. Look, man, I've been playing this game all my life. I keep coming and I keep doing this and to make my parents happy or friends happy or my wife happy, I'll come and, and, and I'll come to this particular service. But the truth of the matter is, it hasn't been real to me. I understand it up here, but it hasn't gripped me, it hasn't changed me. And truth, and truth is, if you were to ask me, do I truly love Jesus Christ, I would tell you no, but I'm afraid of hell. I think, that's a, I think being afraid of hell is, is right. We don't want to be underneath the judgment of God. But for everybody who has tasted of his sweet mercy and grace and knows what God has done to be able to take away that sin, it's not because those who are saved are, are better or their hearts are somehow less sinful than everybody else around them. What it is is that God changed them from the inside out. He changed them. It's not because we're like, hey, I'm going to turn over a new leaf and now I'm going to love Jesus and I'm going to follow him. No, what God did is he came in and by a profession of faith, he changed us, he made us new creatures, and now he put love for him in our heart. He gave a desire to be able to obey him, and he gave us his spirit to seek to follow that, even though we fail in many ways. And if you've never experienced that, I'm going to ask you to do it today. I'm going to ask everybody to stand to their feet if they will. I'm going to pray.